Welcome to the Integral Stage Sexuality Series. I'm Layman Pascal, and before I host my high-priced week-long workshop on integrative sexuality at a seaside Caribbean resort, I need to make sure I've been fully exposed to the multidimensional richness and profundity of this topic. A topic that most people find deeply physically compelling, emotionally significant, and for some people intellectually fascinating and brimming with spiritual and developmental potential. Here to share the ins and out of their understanding is... Hello, everybody, and even if you don't have a body, although you probably should. This is Layman Pascal on the Integral Stage with a new episode of our series of conversations about sexuality, gender, transformational spirituality, and existential depth. Today, we're joined by Greg and Catherine, directors of the Transpersonal Center in Los Angeles, to talk about the ways that they're synthesizing relational health, tantric sexuality, psychedelic spiritual growth, somatic awareness, and the pragmatic integration of altered states as part of their ongoing mission to cultivate the next generation of conscious lovers, which sounds like a very L.A. thing to do. Hi. <laughs> Then. Hello. <laughs> I'm going to steal your introduction because that was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully you're recording this. I, I hope. It says recording. Fingers are crossed. Um, let me start with a ridiculous question, which is, why do people always start centers? Did you at any point consider the transpersonal periphery as an option? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're looking for that transpersonal center. <laughs> We're looking for that place where it doesn't exist. It was an attempt of, of ours to be more centered. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, well, let's dig into that word transpersonal because it's, uh, it's a very sexy word for a certain segment of the population. Builds on the 20th century transpersonal psychology movement. But it seems like it's a word that can point in several different directions for different kinds of people. I think some people hear it as moving toward the impersonal, getting beyond the personal, beyond the ego, beyond the separate self to an aspirational superconsciousness. But for others, I think transpersonal means like ultra-personal, super-personal, a way of moving into the implicit transcendence that's deeper in our unique sensitivities and idiosyncrasies. So you know, for the two of you, what does the word transpersonal signify? Well, I started off in the early days uh, I went to um, and graduated in 1984. I did graduate work at uh, JFK University in the transpersonal psychology program. At the time, it was the only uh, legitimate degree program in the world. There was ITP was also going on, but I was fascinated with transpersonal psychology from the very beginning with Maslow starting it along with all the other wonderful people in the field, Stan Groff. And it's been my abiding interest ever since is uh, further reaches of human development. After we master consensual reality, where do we go? What do we do? How do we uh, become more loving, more giving, more? Uh, how do we get beyond ourselves, beyond our ego? The great book by Walsh and Vaughn about getting beyond ego. So it's always been that for me is getting beyond the personal self and whatever that entails. So there's many ways to get there, psychedelics, sex. Uh, people have come up with technologies for that since long uh, before Western culture. So it's just been the study of all that. And uh, part of that journey is outward. And part of that journey, as you said, is inward. 
And I'll second that and say that I look at uh, transcending is, you know, literally overcoming the limits of overcoming the limits of personal. So I'm in this body. My mission is to be in this body as much as possible and live out this particular reality that I'm in right now. Um, not to ascend, not to escape, not to be higher. I want to be here as much as I can. And what does that entail? That entails transcending a lot of things that I see as uh, they might be limitations. At least they were for me personally. And when I started out in transpersonal psychology, it was pretty much the Ken Wilber. It was actually studying Ken Wilber. And it was that whole model of it's a hierarchy and you want to climb up. And of course, I wanted to be at the highest level. I wanted to be better than everybody else. I wanted to be more conscious, more aware, more. And then, um, you know, I was really stunned when Jorge Ferrar came out and said, it's not about upward. It's about everybody's got something to teach you know that's very arrogant that whole model of transcending and being above everyone else so it's really the field and at least my work and uh a lot of people's has expanded out now into how can we learn from everyone there's no higher and lower we're not i have to keep correcting myself because for years i've been saying higher consciousness i no longer believe in higher consciousness i'm trying to correct myself to say expanded consciousness I don't want to be higher consciousness. I'm going to include more. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I see it as much more uh, rhizomatic, as everything being interconnected and moving out rather than having the old metaphor of the tree. What's the metaphor of the tree? The metaphor of the tree is root cause. We're grounded here. Everything branches out from that rather than being more like a piece of ginger or a mushroom or something as mycelium where everything's interconnected. You can break it off at any point. It'll still grow back. So much more like expansive, inclusive sort of uh, metaphor. In my yeah, mind. it's interesting with our developmental models, because when you talk to the people that work on them, they're often the best people and they can explain very much why their model is saying exactly the things you just articulated. But yeah. the impression we get from encountering the models is still of a kind of increasingly impersonal, abstract superiority ladder. Exactly. I just got into this with someone on Facebook because I didn't get into it. I actually dismissed myself in the conversation because everybody's model puts them at the top. <laughs> I'm the most evolved species, so whatever. Yeah, that's a little bit suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? <laughs> well, let's talk about sex because most people just have sex whether it's good or bad whether it helps them or not but some people in addition to having sex get interested in sex and then a small percentage of the people who get really interested in it are also interested in altered states and developmental maturation and things like that so you two weirdos if i can use the phrase are in that very refined category and i'm curious how you got involved in that kind of a journey like when do you when do you remember having your first spiritually significant or intellectually fascinating sexual experience? When did it become an area of study for you? Well, I uh, was in a bookstore in Venice, California, early 80s, I think. And I saw a book that said sex is spiritual. And I went, doing, what else could it be? What are we missing here? What else, what else could it be? So I started just off trying to explore everything. There wasn't that much available back then. And then uh, I uh, just started reading what I could about Tantra. And then I went and lived in a Tantra ashram in India for a year, the Osho ashram. So I was, it was a full uh, immersion in Tantra and meditation. And I studied with many, many teachers, read many, many books. 
and uh, was very interested in it, but it hadn't become my all-consuming passion until uh, six years ago, Greg and I met in a Tantra workshop. He'd been studying for a while and we started, I'd never heard of this before. We started having intercourse for six or seven hours and he wasn't taking any pills or anything. And it's like, I didn't know this was possible. Neither of us knew this was possible. I had read all these books and done all this study. I'd never heard of it. And uh, while we were having sex for, sex for six or seven hours, we started having psychedelic type experiences. So we had experiences, Greg can talk about this, similar to DMT, where we're being uh, initiated into different levels. We actually had hallucinations, if that's what you call it, experiences of traveling through space. And uh, this sustained itself for uh, quite a long period of time. Then it morphed into something else, but that set me off on this journey of, I gotta know what happened to us. I'm now in a doctoral program at CIAS, trying to find out what happened to us. And I've probably been on that path for about eight, nine years. I always felt like a sort of an outsider or a weirdo. I've never been into locker room talk or the way that women are portrayed and treated um, in mainstream culture. And I just thought that I was a strange person. I always saw sex as something that's much deeper than it appears to be and a very, very intimate, deep connection between two souls. But I was never in a relationship where there was enough trust or safety to allow that to happen, which piqued my curiosity even further. I started delving into Tantra about nine years ago when my life was kind of turned upside down and I went on a, a, a whole quest of my own, developing myself personally and spiritually and happened across Tantra. And it just seemed to make sense. And I started attending different workshops and reading different things and, you know, learned about receiving and learned that, you know, what this all is to me and that everything is sacred. And when I met Catherine, like she said, when we started having intercourse, I just sort of threw out the window um, the notion of automatically ejaculating. It just didn't seem to be necessary anymore. And we both took that path. And this morphed into these long sexual encounters we were having where there was strange phenomenon that's very hard to explain outside of the transpersonal and outside of the psychedelic and outside of the spiritual. So there is something there with the right preparation, with the right people, um, at the right stage of development, I believe, as is the case with most personal and spiritual, that happens when two people are united in sex. Well, you've been doing a lot of um, psychedelic work. I've been doing a lot of work with psychedelics at the time. That was one of the things that, you know, when I set out on this path, one of the things I started learning was intentional use of psychedelics. Uh, I'm a coach. One of the areas I work in is psychedelic integration because that's one of the things that helped me a lot. Um, I turned to psychedelics and discovered that it's great to see everything that you see and make have all the epiphanies and discoveries that you have. But if you don't do something with them in the aftermath, things are going to pretty slide back to you know where they were pretty quickly. So learning about integrating those intentional experiences and taking some action based on them was very helpful to me. And that sort of slid me in the direction of doing coaching in that area myself. But they, they all fit together. They were all part of the same thing, which you can say about just about anything. But those two things were very tightly connected to me. So I started re reading some research that um, you know, I've been uh, trying to find out what's the secret knowledge that was supposedly in Tantra and Tibet or the Taoists. And um, most of those traditions were so androcentric, so patriarchal, 
that the role of women in them was just like uh, little toys to be used so that Gaia could uh, ascend, ascend, you know, ascend higher consciousness. And there weren't really uh, traditions uh, other than uh, this sort of god goddess worship that uh, Daniel Odier talks about that seems to have predated that, where the, there were these yoginis, these crazy wild yoginis who were teaching uh, kind of the old goddess religion, perhaps that I know that's all very controversial, whether that actually existed or not. But there were these female masters that were teaching through their bodies, through connection, and they disappeared under the patriarchy. But Daniel Odier, who's a famous teacher in France, came out and said he had been initiated by this female guru into uh, sexual tantra. Um, so that's been one of the uh, things that I'm learning about. I still have not encountered anywhere these long, massive psychedelic sexual experiences. Now there is Karetsa, which uh, maybe some of your listeners have heard about, which is lengthy lovemaking without ejaculation. And they say that that enhances, oh, the other, I should stop myself right here. The other amazing thing that happened for us is when we met and went into this relationship, both of us were like disasters at relationship. <laughs> I had been married three times and, you know, my relationships with history was terrible. And, and, and then suddenly through this uh, experience we had of being in the uh, higher, here I go, expanded states together, we came out of that knowing how to do a perfect relationship. It like transformed us being in these uh, expanded states together. So now we have like the perfect relationship that everyone is looking for that I was always looking for that I didn't actually think existed. And we have come up with some, how do we do that? We've come up with some things. How do we do that? But I also believe it was part of being in this altered state together for so long. Yeah. We were both hoping to find relationships that weren't as bad as the last one. So maybe we fought a little bit less and, you know, we feel, feel bad less of the time, but uh, up until that time, there was literally no one that I could be around for an extended length of time without having them kind of get on my nerves. And I'm with this being 24 seven, I never tire of her. I mean, we're actually very tightly connected in every possible way that you could think. And that would not have happened with someone else or at another stage of my life. And we have a joke saying, thank God we didn't meet each other five years earlier because it would have just blown we up. We would have wrecked it. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the, uh, this sort of historical lineage of these things and the questions that that raises. Obviously, mm -hmm. with the female mysteries, it's it's an open question whether they weren't there as much or whether they just didn't get recorded as much. Mm -hmm. But when we look at things like Tantra, we often see them veiled in secrecy. And to some degree, that was simply pragmatic because it could be uh, upsetting or confusing to the other people in the society. But there's also this tension between Tantra and Sutra, between the idea that there's some kinds of practices that are for specially prepared or certain types of people, and they maybe aren't for everyone. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, we might look around at our current society and say, we've got relationship disasters and sexual health disasters all over the place. We need to take some things that might previously have been secret and make them much more available to everyone. So I'm curious about how the two of you hold that balance between this material might only be for some people who are specially prepared versus maybe everybody needs to have access to this. We were actually talking about that, that this morning, that with the internet, everything's available. 
but you're still going to only be attracted to that, which is at your kind of vibrational level. So it's like a lot of this stuff I couldn't find, even though I've been studying Tantra for years, I couldn't find some of this information. Now I can find, now it's being shared with me. So I think that there are things that we can put out there and everyone can say, oh, that's what I've been looking for. Whereas before you just couldn't have access if you weren't a white celibate male. That was the only way you could have access. And you had to, you know, a lot of it was about power. It was like, we're going to keep these traditions here and you have to uh, submit to this guru uh, to get the knowledge. And it was just a power thing to keep it in that lineage. And uh, now those lineages are, some of us still respect them, but we can also see that that was uh, not open to everyone else. No one of color, women, uh, etc., and so, um, or the sexually active, basically. Yeah, the secrets are out there. <laughs> I mean, they're all out there in a sea of information. There's nothing hidden anymore, but they're hidden in plain sight now. So we all have the experience of reading a book and getting something from it and going back to it a year or two later and saying, oh my God, I didn't get this before. There's certain information we get when we're at a certain vibration or frequency or stage of personal or spiritual development. And we can tell we can tell people things till we're blue in the face. Only some people will pick up on some of what we're saying, and it'll be the part that makes sense to them at that stage of their journey. So we have discussed in the past whether or not we need to package things like that because people like having steps and making progress, but we also think that there is a need for that. You know, you have to have a foundation. No one can, you know, uh, take apart the sacred text and show you the parts where you become enlightened. That's not how it works. You know, you can study them all your life and not have that happen. But information is all out there. It's a matter of who picks up on one part when. And to us, it's about trying to reach people at the frequency that they're at currently. Because two people can listen to the same teacher and one can be blown away by what he's heard. And the other one says, I don't get it. Well, speaking of teachers, I know that the two of you have spent time hanging out with and learning from various spiritual and therapeutic teachers and individuals of amplifists and that kind of thing. I'm curious who, in hindsight, really impressed you? Who stands out? Who do you look back on and say, thank God I spent some time in that person's presence? Well, for me, it's mostly Osho, mm -hmm. Rajneesh, the controversial Tantra master, uh, completely. And... Uh, you want to go because that towers above everyone else. <laughs> um, Alan Watts was huge for me, of course, as for many people. Jake Krishnamurti um, puts things into plain language. Um, his thought experiments help put things into my body in a way that I can understand them. Adidas Samraj was certainly out there, but also had some things put in a way that just came across to me in a certain way that made sense. Um, I'll never forget hearing what he wrote when he said, your upset is not happening to you. It is a form of your own activity. And there are some things that we know. And when it's put to us a certain way, this goes back to what you're saying about, you know, where's the information? It's right there in front of us. It's a very simple phrase, but it flipped a switch in me that stayed flipped forever. Uh, and I've learned a lot from a man named John Overdurf, who's the person who developed something called humanistic NLP, humanistic neurolinguistic psychology. Um, learned a great deal from him, and he's highly influenced by quantum mechanics and neuroscience. So the spiritual, the mechanical, all of them, there are certain teachers, and, you know, uh, fundamental Buddhism, I would say, has taught me a lot. And I would say um, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has really been a 
guiding saint for me in terms of opening my heart. And I would say Robert Kiyosaki helped me get my uh, financial life together, which is essential for having any kind of emotional stability in life. If your money's not together, you're not emotionally stable. And um, certainly the female uh, Tantra masters that I've studied under, like uh, Radha Luglio from Italy and Margot Nand from France and uh, many others I would want to uh, certainly bow to, sit at their feet. So I think there's an interesting question around how how the masculine feminine pair um, stands with people today as an explanatory tool, because my sense is there's a lot of people in developmental new thought communities who are simultaneously, on the one hand, very sensitive to the fluality and plurality of human sexuality and the vast spectrum of possibilities that gets unnecessarily chopped down socially into two simple binaries. But very often those same people are also very sensitive to this uh, gorgeous, tantric, multi-traditional symbolic use of masculine and feminine symbolism as a profound and very useful form of sense making. So how do you two hold that tension between a deeper use of gender binaries and the impulse to go beyond binaries? I don't think we really buy into it at all. I mean, there's 46 chromosomes and only one of them are different. So I think that we basically don't buy into this. Uh, we see it most almost completely as a social construct. And um, yeah, and I think that social construct goes very deep because as much as we've studied, as much as we've taught in this area, we still catch ourselves constantly being influenced by mainstream culture and the ideas of masculinity and femininity and the roles of those two polar opposites in sexual union what one wants and what the other you know what each want and what the each don't want you know there are a lot of stereotypes a lot of things embedded in our language a lot of things embodied that pit those two against each other constantly and that's what we're kind of battling all the time so, personally and in our teachings so i think we see it as something to disengage with to continually disidentify with what was you know, it's so deep, like Greg's saying, what I was indoctrinated in to think a woman's supposed to be, or to think what a older person is supposed to be, or to think what a, how I'm supposed to be sexually. It's so deep. I see so much suffering in this area, young women suffering so much from being told that their bodies are supposed to look like I had an eating disorder for decades. And just this constant fight to be something attractive to men in the male gaze, it's like, once you once you come to that place, it was actually a man who helped me, a pickup artist that I was studying under. <laughs> I studied male pickup, and he helped me really get back that sense of it's not anyone looking at me; it's me looking out of here. You know, I'm doing the looking, and that's neither male or female. That's a person who's strong in their power chakra. It's like I hold the gaze. Nobody else's gaze really matters to me all that much. And, but separating from these things can be such a long task, so fruitful, so fruitful to get to the central self where none of this matters. I can play with it, but I don't have to be uh, so hurt by it. Greg and I'll be making love sometimes and we'll stop and we'll have discovered something. It's like, oh man, I was just coming from this indoctrinated female place of I'm supposed to please you right now or something like this, you know, and, and we'll both go, wow, yeah. That's how it is, you know, and we can just keep going because we're identifying and letting go of how deep that that is and telling us who we are, how disempowered we are, 
how victimized we are. It's this whole victim story of, oh, you're this, you're, you're this because men do this, you're this because women do that. It's just very much keeping us out of our own empowered self, which has a lot to do with sexuality, which comes up as this is my life force. This is me. I'm going to express it. Sometimes, you know, I, I teach this one in one of our little online workshops. It's like, here's, here's sex, for example. This one's leading, right hand's leading, right hand's leading. Okay, now left hand is leading. Now right hand's leading again. Now left hand's leading. Now the dance is happening all by itself. Nobody's leading. Nobody's leading. So we have these myths about the males active and the females passive. And it's like, this is all inside us. All inside us, both are happening. And the most beautiful thing about sex or about life is when you're in this dance together and nobody's leading. Something's leading by itself. I will call that transpersonal because when that comes in sex, that so um, so I was reading uh, Diana Richardson. We actually went and studied with her and Michael in Switzerland. They do a week-long making love workshop. And I had read in one of her books, oh, the bodies, after a period of time, the bodies start making love by themselves. I was like, oh my God, that's happened to us. And most people have not had that experience where you let go so completely that the bodies start, they won't stop. They start making love forever and they don't want to stop. When the bodies are free of their uh, what the, uh, the conditioning and of the way the bodies have been told to be and we're able to let go of all that pain we have about we don't have the right body. Oh my God, I've got cellulite. Oh my God, my dick's too small. Oh my God, it's so awful. When you can heal yourself of all of that social conditioning and be in the presence of someone else who's healed of that, the bodies can start expressing themselves, making love all by themselves, and they do not want to stop. They won't let you stop. You want to go to sleep and you're like, oh, we've got to we got to keep making love. It's just amazing. It's a miraculous thing that we're not told that this is um, this is even a possibility. And some people discover it by accident, but it's available to all, but not in the way we're going around about having conventional sex. So conventional sex is about, we've been told this was codified in the 70s by Masters and Johnson that sex looks like this. We've all seen the graphs. It goes up and then you come and it comes down. And it's about 20 minutes, if you're lucky. And reproductive sex actually worldwide lasts about 2.5 minutes. And that's obviously just the guy coming and nothing else happening. And oh, I'm sorry, three and a half minutes. Sorry, I give you the extra minute. <laughs> extra minute is important. And then, you know, in the Western world, we're that told... That's really good, by the way. Yeah, it's a very good minute. <laughs> so we're told this one model and everybody's doing the same boring thing i'm sorry it gets so boring because it's like you know we'll do our foreplay because we have to because women need it and then we get to come and then it's and then you know the model of educated people now is she comes first and then he comes and thank god at least she's got some attention on her but doesn't this get boring foreplay she comes he comes it's over and then you're kind of like what well that was fine but I started to find it really boring. Not that I wasn't, um, sometimes I wasn't sexual. Sometimes I would still be like, there's got to be more to this. And that model is presented as this is what it is. And the only thing you can do to make that more interesting is put on outfits or, uh, you know, do BDSM, which nothing wrong with those things. But I was like, 
what else? That's supposed to be it. And uh, people are into that, great. But it, uh, so there's other models. I just want to tell people those other models, which is you come up and then you don't have to stop and you don't have to do a bunch of mantras and standing on your head and squeezing here and there to not come. You just don't. You want to say about that? Yeah. First, I'll just say about my maleness. I'll say the same thing about that as I say about my icon, the icon that I currently have in front of you. I, I take it seriously. That doesn't mean I have to take it literally. So it's something I very much enjoy, but it's not uh, my essence. You're talking about your physical self? I'm talking about my maleness, my gender. Oh, okay. you know, the male gender being a male. I take it seriously. I'm a male. I enjoy aspects of being a male, but I don't take it literally. You're very good I, at that's it. me. Yeah. <laughs> but what Catherine was just talking about is something that comes, um, you know, there seems to be some sort of imperative. You can argue whether or not it's biological uh, for men to ejaculate. And although it's believed by most people that ejaculation and orgasm for males are the same thing, they're not. The laws of contiguity and spontaneity have made that uh, made that impression on us because things that happen in close proximity repeatedly, and especially if they're intense, get wired together in our nervous system. Well, the sensation you have before you ejaculate that tells you that you're going to is actually the beginning of an orgasm. And that can happen without ejaculation. And that's kind of key to the things we're talking about because this experience of the bodies making love by themselves doesn't happen for a while. It seems to only happen after at least a couple of hours of continuous lovemaking, which doesn't happen in continuous sex where the, where the goal is pretty much to ejaculate after a certain amount of time of maybe edging or taking a while or doing it again. Talking edging. Not talking about edging. I've experienced everything from orgasmic waves, which I usually experience, you know, big peaks and valleys to complete total full body orgasms that feel exactly like ejaculating without ejaculating and without losing any energy and her desire without losing an erection. So once those two things are separated, then it's possible to enter into these areas where some of these phenomena occur. And you do that by relaxing because most Taoist techniques and so forth are about tensing so you don't orgasm, squeezing the penis, pressing on the perineum, some sort of effort. And what you discovered was well, that's that's an intervention at the point that it, it's kind of too late. You know, you're you're down the slide by that point. And what I had read and discovered what seems to work and what seemed to work intuitively was relaxing, breathing deeply, maybe slowing down. But, you know, um, these things happen as a result of tension building up. If you think about it, we're breathing faster, breathing becomes shallow. The body tightens up around the abs and the glutes, the legs, and then something happens. So when you relax that, um, it staves it off a bit. And you said specifically the stomach muscles, right? Yeah, and that's what I read originally saying the abdominals, but it seems to happen around the glutes too. So all those areas we've learned to tense to come to an orgasm, we do the opposite because if we orgasm, it's going to be over. So women's clitoral orgasms function in the same way that men's uh, ejaculatory orgasms happen, which is after you have them, you're done. You don't really want to continue. And it often makes you cranky. There are other kinds of orgasms that women have and that men have that don't stop. Why would you want to stop making love if it's so great? So rather than this model where you go up and then it's over, you just go up and then you go up and down and up and down. But then the orgasms happen like this too. They're rippling, what I call orgasmic waves. They just come, they take you over, but they don't deplete you. 
They don't deplete you. You don't have to feel like stopping. You can stop if you want. It's not that you can't. I mean, I don't want to make that body's take over like some sort of Chucky horror story or something. It's like you can stop if you want, but why would you want to when it's that good? So instead of this model where it goes up and it stops, people can be introduced to That's not the only model. You know, this is the tyranny of Masters and Johnson and the Kinsey report is that it, they told us that this is how sex is supposed to be. And then there's this other thing where it's like, a woman can have a, uh, or a man can have these ongoing orgasms that just ripple. They're not like this type of intense that's up and down and you don't have to tense for it. In fact, these kinds of orgasms come through complete relaxation. And who can you be relaxed with? Often we're choosing partners because they're hot and they're sexy and, and uh, you know, I've done that too. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to have this kind of tantric lovemaking, you want to be with someone who you trust completely. This is your best friend. So your best friend and your best sexual friend. Because that level of trust to be able to let go for those just rippling cosmic transcendent orgasms that trust is, you know, it's the base chakra. It's the root chakra. If you don't have that trust, you don't, you can't go there. We had trust even when we were virtually strangers, um, just because I guess, I guess for we can some reason, energy. <laughs> we can feel that energy and um, we just continue to build that trust. And this is another thing that the mainstream teaches people in dating is that you should be, you know, the friend zone is death to attraction. And now, um, the Gottmans, I don't know if you people know the Gottmans are a psychologist couple out of Seattle who've been do doing a lot of actual research on what makes relationships work. And it is 70% of people in healthy relationships say it's the friendship. So I just wonder why we're telling single people the friend zone is a bad place. In Tantra, the friend zone is where you want to be. When I was in the ashram in India, Everybody, it was a very sexy place, but everybody was more interested in being friends first. Because how could you relax in a sexual relationship if this isn't your best friend or a friend? At least if you're having a casual encounter, that's great. But if you're having it in the spirit of friendship, of uh, appreciation, of respect, then those are the only ways you can relax. I can remember sexual experience being so uptight and do they really like me? And this just doesn't make for any sort of wonderful, sacred sexual encounter. seems like there's a lot of socioeconomic and lifestyle considerations that go into this because I can imagine people thinking friendship takes a long time. Several hours of sex sounds great, but I don't have the time. I've got to get back to work. I've got to get back to the kids. My The lifestyle in which I'm embedded doesn't afford me that much time and energy and attention for these things. That's true. We only we make love 15 minutes every morning and more if we have time, but we usually are very busy in our lives. And uh, it's extremely satisfying the way we make love. Timothy Leary uh, once said that um, the erotic arts have always been uh, practiced by the leisure class. And that you're exactly right. You have to have enough time. You don't have to have enough time to uh, make love in a so-called spiritual tantric way, 15 minutes a day. But, you know, uh, what we teach, at it's the basics of what we teach is what we call the science of creating your soulmate. 
we teach the sort of relationship where you can have the level of comfort where these things are possible. It's not necessarily out of the gate. Here's what we're teaching. You're, not, you're going to make love for five, six, seven hours, have these psychedelic phenomena happen. That's something that can happen. What's foundational is the trust in a relationship that we've sort of codified in uh, the courses we teach and the classes that we teach and the way that we approach people and couples. And they're very simple, basic agreements, if you will, that can be customized for anyone. But they have to do with the level of communication that you have and the level of comfort comfort that you can foster and level of safety as a result of that. Safety is at the, is at the basis of everything. And especially in this context, if you're going to be making love, you have to feel safe with the person in order to really let go and have the possibility of having anything beyond just what we know as the physical experience. So like one thing that safety means to us, for example, is before we make love, even we somehow had this as practice even when we were dating we would clear whatever riffraff might be in the way before we would make love for example i didn't like that thing you said what did you mean by that this morning i'm still upset about how you handled that thing a couple days ago and we would talk through things because anything that you don't talk through like that's going to show up in the bedroom so i'm still a little miffed about something this morning that's going to show up and i don't feel like making love or can we get it over quickly or, you know, all these things that are called normal, it's called normal. And for most couples, these kinds of unspoken, unprocessed, uh, uh, what would you say, snafus in the relationship conflicts, all these unprocessed conflicts are why they don't want to make love anymore. It's why they don't feel close anymore. It's why they're looking outside for someone else because someone else would be more interesting and not have a lot of problems. And basically between the two people, so we have an agreement that even if like, if I might say, you know, there was still that thing a year ago, I'm still not completely finished with it. And Greg will go, please tell me. And we do that in our daily lives. It's not just before we make love because we want to live in an era of safety. So I no longer have to, as was historic for me, worry that if I ask Catherine, hey, you okay? And she says, I'm just tired. I don't have to worry about the blow up that's going to happen in you know, 15 minutes to three hours from now when what really is on her mind comes up because I know that she's just tired. Because if it was anything else, we would have talked about it ahead of time. And resentment, anger, fear, lack of safety can show up, can disguise themselves and show up as indifference which we see quite often in relationships. I just don't feel like it right now. Just don't feel like being close to that person right now. And if you felt like being close to that person, you know, a day or two ago and you don't now, there's a possibility that there's something unsaid that's going on. It doesn't necessarily have to be there, but there's a good possibility there might be a little bit of resentment over something that seems very small getting in the way of possible intimacy. So you use the phrase creating your soulmate that's an unusual yeah. phraseology why creating and so a quote from osho and he said that that's tantra is the science of creating your soulmate because you uh rather than it comes from you know tinkerbell comes along and puts fairy dust on you you develop yourself in these seven chakra areas i know some people that word chakra is like fingernails on a chalkboard so we could say the different centers you develop yourself in these uh, different centers and you'll attract someone who's vibrating at the same frequency. So if, for example, I'm, uh, I don't know, what's an example? If I'm really low in my, most, most women are low in their power center and most, actually most men are lower in their power center because they haven't learned how to be inner powerful without having to do Superman type things. 
Did that sound offensive? No, not to me. And um, so to, if you get two people who are not developed in their power center and they're in a, in a relationship and actually in I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist too. And we learned that almost everyone in America is stuck on the, almost all relationships in America are stuck on the power center stage. It's two people battling over who has more, who has more power. And they're not in their own personal power. That's why the battles are going on. And as soon as either of those people can develop into their own personal power, those power struggles don't have to, don't exist because it's, it's inner or if people aren't developed or, this common thing you see, which is that somebody's heart center is open and they want to fall in love, but the other person was coming from the first and second, they just wanted to have sex. So that's not a match for ongoing. So what uh, Osho was teaching is that when you can get these centers vibrating, then you'll attract someone at the same vibrational level. And that is a soulmate connection because we all want to connect on these all different uh from these different places so when catherine and i met it was apparent that there was something very deep here a very strong connection that was unlike anything that we encountered before either of us but that didn't mean that we just let it coast because that was a soulmate relationship in the same way that you work on yourself continually you need to work on a relationship in order to keep improving it you know um there is a mainstream idea that when you meet your soulmate it's just going to happen and everything works out just fine well we have to work on ourselves personally and spiritually we have to work on our careers we have to work on our hobbies everything needs continuous improvement and that goes for relationships as well and sometimes people don't know how to navigate those waters what is it i can do um do i follow the rules of mainstream culture would say that i act this way and this person act that way because that's ingrained in a lot of people's minds the stereotypes have been put out basically by advertising companies to keep us apart so that we stay unhappy so that we buy more stuff have influenced people greatly in at least this culture so people don't know how to act many times they don't know what to say they don't know what sort of agreements or frameworks they can have in place to foster the further development of a relationship. So that's where we try to help people at that level. We try to determine where they are, where the other person is, and what can you do as a couple, as you've done as individuals, hopefully, to continually work on that dynamic that you call a relationship, that really is, relationship is a frozen thing. It's really the process of relating to one another. Sometimes on people basis. think, I'm sorry, sometimes people think this thing of working on relationships, some big, really difficult drag out process and it has not been for us basically it's been this process of clearing any miscommunication what did you mean by that I'm still a little upset about this morning still got some stuff on that just this continually making sure the energy is clear because it's so painful when it's not and people haven't been taught to really check in like we can clear that energy we can clear that thing and then then you, it goes back to flowing freely and that just feels great that's a soulmate relationships feeling it's flowing oh i'm feeling a little bit stuck what is it oh it's that thing i said this morning i need to clear i need to apologize for saying that it's just continually just making sure we're in the present moment with each other that's a spiritual discipline of sorts and most people think that they do that people say oh yeah we we talk about things but most people do is fight until they get tired we talk things out until we're done, like really done. The charge is gone and there's nothing left to say anymore. And we make sure of that before we move on. And it might pop up again. If it does, we talk about it then. And this comes up, we work with um, some couples with MDMA. And this will come up 
even in those moments when they want to be feeling so much potential to be closer, all this undiscussed stuff comes up from years ago, from this morning, all these conversations that have not happened, clogging the flow of energy. And it's a time for them to talk through those things and get to a place where that energy is flowing freely again. Some of these people, that's a, uh, depending on how long they've been together, that could be 25 years worth of unprocessed stuff, but it can be gotten through and then you have the relationship you've been looking for. The notion of power has come up a few times and there's an individual aspect to that where you've got to you know, work on and cultivate your sovereignty and your openness internally and your ability to uh, separate from or work around the social ideas and constraints that are imposed on you by others. But there's also an aspect of power that's sort of instantiated in the in the situations and contexts that we set up in our lives. And I'm curious about, you know, you're in California, you're talking about spirituality and sexuality and offering practices and insights to people about something that's really important to them. What do you do to make sure that doesn't become a cultic situation? Like, what do you do to make sure the social dynamic through which you're teaching doesn't slide bit by bit into an unhealthy power imbalance? Well, I have a, a series of books that are written for a popular audience. And uh, those are available on Amazon. So I'm trying to speak in a language that's easy to understand. And people are it's available to people, whether they ever know us or not. That's one thing. We try not to do too much in the area of should. This is all available to people. And we also try to make sure we try to foster an environment where people realize that we may be here um, overseeing or keeping in place a certain process, but everything is coming from them. You know, this is something that you are doing. We can sort of point you in a different direction and maybe that works for you and maybe it doesn't. We're very careful to stay away from you need to do this or should do this. So these are all things that are available and they, all, they should all be done in ways that work for an individual or couple and that they're comfortable with. And I think also we're very aware that we have an offering. That's not of interest to most people. And here's the offering. If you want it, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. Is that answering your, your question? I think that does. That's good. Um, you know, one thing that popped up for me is, I don't know if you know Steve March, who does Aletheia coaching, but mm -hmm. I had a discussion with him recently about memory reconsolidation windows and the way that new patterns can be reinforced or not in the several hours following a peak experience or a moment of insight and release. And I saw, Greg, that you had a video on the flip side of neuroplasticity. And I wondered if you'd say a few words about the opportunity that people have in the window of time following an altered state or an unusual experience. Yeah, uh, neuroplasticity is uh, misunderstood by a lot of people, but and basically when you're talking about after a peak experience, like a psychedelic experience, there is a chemical environment that makes it more easy to form new neural pathways, new habits, patterns, ways of being and thinking. Now, a lot of people think that those things just pop up during a psychedelic experience and your brain's rewired. That's not necessarily what happens. Things like that can happen to a certain extent. But really, when you're in a state of being highly neuroplastic, your brain is waiting for you to show it what it is you're going to do. And if you go back to what you've done normally, slide back into your normal life, like I did the first time I tried psychedelics and thought, well, now that I've seen that, everything's going to be different. 
then your unconscious mind, which controls all your unconscious actions and all your patterns and all your triggers is all too happy to say, great, why don't you go back to sleep and I'll handle this? You know, we know how this works. So for instance, when people work with Ibogaine, there is a high level of neuroplasticity after an addict has come off of a substance like, like opiates or heroin. And in the aftermath of an Ibogaine experience, it's really recommended that people have aftercare, which means get out of your normal environment because the triggers that are in your environment are gonna drag you right back to where you were. So you need to sort of change your surroundings and do something differently to show your brain, this is not, we're not doing this thing anymore. And I tell people, look, just be other handed for a while. Pick up the glass with your right hand if you pick it up with your left hand, usually move the trash can, Brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. Those are the basic things you can do. Look into some contemplative practices that interest you, but do something different. And you talked about memory reconsolidation. You know, people think that memories are sort of a 3D holographs that are stored somewhere. Memories are stored in bits and pieces all over our brains. The parts of our brains that record horizontal lines is different from the parts of our brains that record vertical lines. So every time we pull, pull up a memory, we reconstruct it, which is one of the reasons that memories change over time. And one of the reasons that eyewitness testimony is considered to be really bad evidence in a court of law in the United States. Something like a psychedelic experience or even the presence of a sympathetic ear while you're reconsolidating a disturbing memory can change that memory to a certain extent. And if you're working with neuroplasticity and those things are coming up, you have to remember to have yourself in a place that's different from the place that you were so that memory can be consolidated in a different way, hopefully a more productive way. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. And it, it brings up another question, which is about how that applies in sexuality, because I do hear some people talk about psychedelics and then integration. Sometimes there's a discussion around spiritual experiences and integration, but I don't hear people having much discussion about what do we do after sex, right? What's what's an integration protocol following a sexual experience or what's a, a healthy and intelligent way to handle the post-sexual phase? That's a great, uh, great topic. I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll take that. I'll go first. Then. How's that? Okay. So um, Catherine mentioned a couple of things when she was talking a while ago, and one of them was unsafe sex. All right. So this is the flip side of neuroplasticity. If you are having sex in a highly vulnerable, open state with someone and you don't, you're not sure whether or not they care about you, that can be damaging. And I know the words used a lot, but it can be traumatic. One of the things that we deal with in Tantra is the trauma that can occur during relationships and a lot during sexual relationships, even when they're consensual and even when they seem safe, that weren't safe at the time. She also mentioned the fact that when people have uh, ejaculatory sex, the interest in the other person seems to drop off suddenly. In fact, there's sort of a polarity that happens there, like, that's fine, you go to your corner and I'll go to mine. How does that affect a relationship? I've just been very open. I've just gotten to a certain place. I've gotten to a place of nothingness, really, for just a second. If I've had an orgasm, an altered state, an altered state and then I find myself being sort of repelled from this person. That's kind of reverse integration. That's disintegration if you're talking about a relationship. So the type of sexual encounter where we're talking about where the bodies even want to keep making love when you stop is really an integrative state where you're attracted to that person rather than being pushed away from them. 
But we're also very mindful ourselves. You know, I don't think that there's a one size fits all integration. Integration is different for everybody, depending on the experience, the person, their past, all kinds of different variables. You have to make a judgment about that. But you do have to be careful about integration after peak experience or mystical experience, including one that is sexual. You know, your brain is once again waiting for you to say, OK, we just had that experience. What are we doing now and how are we going about this? And it's going to record that in some way, shape or form. And it might reconsolidate memories as a result of remembering things in that state. I think, um, yeah, gentleness afterwards helps integrate. Jenny Wade, Dr. Jenny Wade, who's a transpersonal psychologist, wrote a great book I'd recommend to everybody called Transcendent Sex, When Lovemaking Opens the Veil. And she studied people to whom this type of psychedelic sex experiences that we had happened to people by surprise, which could include us, but ours was different in that it kept going. And this is people it takes by surprise and just visits them and alters the course of their life because nobody knows, nobody talks about the fact that this happens. And part of her research was that people don't even feel close enough with their partners often to be able to say, oh, I just traveled to the moon. You know, and the other one goes, I didn't. And what does that mean to your relationship if one person is having a, a transpersonal sexual experience and the other one isn't? And what does it mean if you can't talk about it? And what does it mean that your relationship is not that you can talk about your experience of sex? So I think on either side of sex, the integration part is we continue as a couple, whether we're a committed couple or not, we just continue if I'm a single person on my own journey towards trying to talk as openly and transparently about sex as I can. And the mainstream culture is like, well, you'll be rejected if you do that. But if you're on a spiritual, personal growth path, how do I continue to, on either side of sex as an integration practice, try to communicate as openly and honestly as I can about what my experience was? Oh, I was really asleep in that one. Sorry. <laughs> you know, or I was really feeling uh, more love for you than I expected. I know early on I said to Greg, I hope you don't mind, but I'm really starting to have strong feelings for you. I didn't mind. I was really scared. <laughs> But it was that an attempt to try to say, instead of hide it, you know, the conventional girl um, game is to hide that. Don't let them know you care. And so I just was trying to say, I hope this isn't inconvenient that I'm, you know, like you. And just trying to, on both sides of the sexual experience, trying to say, uh, here's who I am. Here's who I want to be. Here's who we are. Here's who we want to be. We want to be the kind of people who can talk about everything. So first, very simple things like saying, hey, that was great earlier. I care about you. Let's sit down for a minute. I'm going to reach over and touch you. Those are very simple things that are very, uh, I think, integral to our own integration process. You know, we make sure we don't just disconnect afterwards. We're very busy and we do disconnect physically, but we make sure and keep coming back to each other and keep reinforcing what it is that just happened. So I think this, again, is part of what's wrong with the 20 minute model that we've all been sold, which is that it actually goes much, much uh, further before and after than we realize. So I think your idea that there's an integration process is a great one because if we saw that sex, even if it's 20 minutes, which nothing wrong with that, it's 20 minutes, sex is great. But if you, if you realize it's extended before and after, I remember reading somewhere, somewhere once uh, some male forum I was reading and the guy goes, how long should uh, 
how long do I have to do foreplay? <laughs> the guy goes, you should start in the morning if you want to have sex at night. You know, it's like it's this it's an ongoing process. You know, we see because we rarely uh, we rarely stop. We rarely uh, have those type of orgasms that make us up. We see that we're always making love and we're just doing it physically at these 15 minutes. We never say we're stopping. We always say we're taking a break. Yeah. We, we don't uh, ever attention. stop making love. We just take a break for a while. So we, we've, ex, you know, it's about expanding the context. To me, it's about that when you're working with people, you're always expanding the context and adding more to make things better. And to us, it's expanding the context so that our lives is uh, a process of making love with a lot of other things included as well. And keeping in mind that afterwards, part of your, uh, your integration experience is that your partner's feeling very vulnerable. And depending on how much work they've done processing out their cultural programming and their own personal trauma, they may be feeling very insecure and vulnerable. And you can do a lot with opening up a conversation about that or telling them they're beautiful to you or acting in a nurturing way, but realizing that that's probably the state they're in. And, and uh, how do I want to deal with that? And it goes directly to your question about memory reconsolidation, because there's a reason they're feeling vulnerable. They might not realize that's the reason, but something's coming up from the past. And if someone intervenes at that moment, they can help reconsolidate that memory. They can help make the past a little bit better and heal that just by their presence. So something that's coming up for me now is, is thinking about how creating your soulmate operates in a world of digital communication, because I think the ancient energetic practices whereby you're, um, you're cultivating yourself in a way that can attract and resonate with the person that you're trying to meet. Uh, that's based anciently in a world of people being in real life. Uh, how does that translate to something like dating sites? Or what do you communicate to someone in an artificial method of communication that could do some of that appropriate signaling and participate in a more magical coming together rather than having it sort of get diluted and degraded by the new communication tools? I did a lot of online dating before I met Greg, and I feel that you can really feel vibration over the internet. I think that's really present, perhaps even more when you're not distracted by the person. Sex takes place in the physical, let's face it. And if you want to have online sex, then there's plenty of opportunities. But if you want to have juicy, physical, body embodied sex, you're going to have to develop yourself for that. That may become a minority of people in the future. So it seems that people are preferring porn. There's a lot of statistics that the more porn men watch, the less they want to actually be with real women or they find their real partners less attractive women seem to be happier reading romance novels in fact ebooks of romance novels to your point of it's all going digital seems to be the preferred uh avenue for that people in japan there are statistics that people in japan young people don't really want to have sex anymore they think it's gross and they uh, prefer online sex and the government is actually taking steps to try to get young people to meet in person because they're afraid of the birth rate because nobody wants to have sex anymore. So this may be the future that the people who are actually interested in a tantric embodied experience may be the minority, but it's the truth today too. So, And I think when you're dealing with the digital world, you know, there are certain um, rules and regulations. You want to keep yourself safe and you can't just put yourself out there 100%, but I think you have to be yourself. 
I mean, you just have to put out the vibration that you are because that's the only way to attract people who are going to be attracted to that, that vibration. And if you don't, when do you change or do you keep performing? Um, it's all about performance. It's all about performance. Modern sex, it's called performative sex. And we perform on social media and that's all a performance. But when you're talking about the possibility of going out with someone, to a certain extent, you have to put yourself out there. If you want that. Yeah, definitely. that's what I'm saying. You have to keep yourself safe. Definitely. Definitely. We've got three teenagers in the house and they're just moving into dating or date-like engagements with people. I have a lot of confidence in them, but I'm curious from your kind of tantric point of view that you guys are bringing in, what kind of advice do you give people on their very first dates? People who have no history of sexuality and relationships to build off of who are coming into it for the very first time. I wrote a book and I do a monthly workshop called Tantric Dating, which is helping people meet each other with love and awareness. And the main thing is to cultivate this quality of friendship. Because, for example, I'll do this exercise where I'll, I'll uh, have them look around and, you know, they have all their judgments on about who's, who they would swipe left and who they would slap, uh, swipe right on, left and right. And then we go around and they do some exercises where they talk to people. And then I go, now look around the room. Don't these people look more attractive to you? And they're all like, Yes, everybody looks wildly more attractive when you get to know them. So I think that um, this is my main one of my main messages for daters is it's what we did at the ashram was we developed friendships first and then decided whether or not a sexual relationship would make sense. Because only if you're in a, a relationship, a friendship where there's some trust there, is it going to be good anyway? So I would say challenge that idea that the friend zone is not where you want to be and say, Actually, it's where I want to be. I want to make love with my best friend. That's where the good, that's where the great sex is. And what I'm going to say is highly influenced by Catherine's book, Tantric Dating. But it is that we have created an environment where dating is a very negative experience. And we we're trying to disqualify the person in front of us. So what are we doing? We're looking for the negatives. And then we wonder why we go home and think, God, that was exhausting. It felt terrible. Well, what are you doing? You're looking for what's negative the entire time instead of realizing that I may never see this person again. That's fine. But for the 30 to 60 minutes I'm sitting here with them, can't I try to find something that's good about them and try to enjoy my time with them in some way, shape, or form? And that really kind of rocked my world at the time when I started interacting with people differently based on just that uh, concept she put forth for dating. But a teenager would probably laugh you out of the room if you said that to them. But I think it's a seed that should be planted for them. Absolutely. That there are a lot of people who are looking at other people negatively all the time rather than trying to find out what's good about them. And that can be people you're dating. And that doesn't mean you're going to fall in love and get married. Doesn't even mean there's going to be a second date. But why not make that into an experience that's more pleasant for yourself and have, you know, I'm very big on internal representations. Why are you carrying around internal representation of someone that's negative? You know, it might seem like that's the logical thing to do, but it doesn't feel good inside of you. This might sound very strange, as if everything we're talking about doesn't sound really strange. But <laughs> when I was dating, I uh, I had this experience at the ashram. And in the tantric worldview, everything is sacred. Every moment is perfect. And I can't see that because of my conditioning or my personality or been taught to see it as this way or that way but i trust because i've had 
mystical experiences where I experience the perfection of this present moment. So even though I don't live in that moment to moment, because I'm just the same as everyone else, I'm like, oh, it's too hot in here. And I wish that person would be nice or whatever, my busy mind. But I've had a mystical experience where I do was shown that I did experience that everything's perfect. So I was trying to take that into dating. And I would be like, I'd be on some coffee date with some guy off the internet. I'd be like, this is perfect. This person's perfect. This is my perf this is my chance for perfect love in this moment. I don't have any other chance. There's no other guy here. This is my chance for perfect love in this moment. I would try to hold that tantric position. And sometimes it was challenging, mostly because I was in my own way of being able to experience love in this person. Why? Because of how they look, because of their shoes. I mean, this is this is uh, really uh, severely flawed uh, dating thinking because the more loving I can be in this moment, the more I'm going to attract love. So I would use it as a spiritual discipline to say, if I'm really living my tantric principles, this person's perfect right now. Look how I've been taught to see that they're not I'm just going to try to experience with this person's perfection in this moment. And then at the end of it, go home. Most dates don't work out, but it's part of my spiritual growth to experience this perfection of this moment on this date. And this is what I, this is my meditation in this moment is to be in this place, understanding its perfection. These poor guys had no idea this was what was going on, but for me, it was a, uh, developing myself to be a more loving person to be able to attract a higher frequency of love because what the conventional dating world is doing is it's trying to attract love by being unloving it's like oh i don't like how you look i couldn't love someone like you i don't 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 i'm super judgmental i'm gonna go home from this date and tell my girlfriends oh my god this guy was so awful and it's all this thing you know and it's about status and who you can, uh, who's going to look good on your arm. And it has nothing to do with, hey, we're going to have great sex if we're friends. I just want to see if on this date, not how hot you are, because how hot you are to a tantric person, everybody's hot. We're attracted to everyone. So it's like, it's not really about how hot you are. It's about, can I relax with you on the couch? and just hang out because and then maybe that'll turn into lovemaking because we're so comfortable and it's just so great so it's a whole different uh way i think you can help uh teenagers or anyone who's single to just say hey this is an opportunity to practice love so that you can find love this is not an opportunity to practice how judgmental you can be because that's not going to lead to love but the conventional dating world is about uh Continue to develop yourself as a judgmental person in a very mean and cruel manner and to be very mean and cruel to very nice people because they don't look a certain way or they don't, they're not cool in their actions. So by developing this ability to be meaner and meaner and meaner, we get further and further away from love or being able to see the perfection of this moment, which I know to be true. I was just thinking about uh, when I was a teenager and I read this book in high school called Sex and Drugs by Robert Anton Wilson. And it had all kinds of practical instruction about how to have a good time. And I remember being astonished by this because 
at home and at school and all the other places that were providing some nominal sex education, they weren't touching on having a good time as part of that. And so now I guess I want to ask a question like this. What's the bigger problem when it comes to pleasure and the ability to have a good time? Is it that people don't know how, they don't have the skills, or is it that they feel like they don't deserve it? They don't take 100% responsibility for their own pleasure. They think it's out there somewhere. If I do that, it will be pleasurable. It's like, actually, I can enjoy anything. That's up to me whether I have a good time or not. That's up to me. That's not up to anybody else. That's part of dating, too. I tell them, it's like, who, who's, who's responsible for whether you have a good time on a date or not? It's not the other person. It's you. The same thing with eating or anything that people are going after to try to have pleasure or sex. It's like part of our tantric development of sex is how much can I enjoy this moment? Or am I waiting for the big bang? Conventional sex says I can enjoy the big bang and everything else is kind of in the way to get there. Oh, he's not doing it. He's not turning me on the right way for me to get there. That's what we're taught to focus on instead of, oh my God, this exquisite perfect moment of pleasure every moment can be this perfect exquisite exquisite moment of pleasure how can i expand that there's an nlp technique about you take your pleasure and then can you expand it just sitting here can you just expand that it feels good can you make it bigger well that's a great love making technique right there and to me it's always about once again what's in the way me having a good time so that has a lot to do with expectations and if you look at uh you know here are my expectations here are the results and this gap is not having a good time being disappointed or whatever but the question is who put this here and if i don't like what's happening because it's not meeting this why is it staying there what are my expectations and are my expectations that I'm going to have a good time doing what people think I should be doing or what should be fun or what I'm supposed to like or are my expectations just other than what is happening right now and if so why and if you're not having a good time great but you should it might be a good time good a good thing to check in first and find out if any of those things are happening if I'm wishing that it was different right now who's responsible for that and but if I wasn't how much uh, of all of this, how much of all of this is about uh, returning consciousness to the body and being more somatically aware and more like in touch with the capacity for touch rather than focusing on intellectual and social dimensions that we could be paying. So much of it. So much of it. You know, we're embodied beings and it's great to be smart and have brains and talk about these things like we are, but we're often cut off from the neck down. And we don't realize what's happening. We don't realize that we're feeling our feelings in our body. And our brain is busy telling us a story about what it is we're feeling. You know, some people don't know that every every strong emotion they had is tied to a sensation or a combination of sensations in their body. You know, because everything seems to be happening up here because that's where we think. So we think that we th think our feelings. We don't. We feel our feelings, the good ones and the bad ones. So being you know body awareness is a big part of a tantra and it's a big part of our approach when we teach people most people are having sex in their heads and their body isn't really there because we're all taught as greg said to be cut off here and i know that i before i went to the ashram i thought i was a body conscious person because 
I was a dancer. I did yoga. I worked out. I watched what I eat a little too closely, but anyway. <laughs> and but that wasn't being embodied at all. That's maybe a first step. But being embodied means actually being inside and experiencing somatically your your experience and uh, sinking down below the brain. Osho used to say, "Imagine yourself as a headless person." It's like so hilarious, but it also is a very good metaphor for what if I'm walking around as a body. The body has its own intelligence. It's actually much smarter than my head because my head can convince me of anything. So dropping down in the body, making love in the body, being present in the body, being present on a date in the body. I help my tantric dating people do this. They can't really hold it longer than half a minute, but it's a start. It's a start to have that awareness of I'm living my life in my body. It's living my life in my body. And that's really helps with being in the present moment, which is perfect. But you can't experience the present moment as perfect if you're thinking about it because your mind will tell you it's too hot. Your mind will say, that person's not cute enough. Your mind will say, I don't like the way he's touching me right there. That's the wrong spot. Your mind will do all these things to, convincing you that this moment isn't perfect. But if you can quiet that, which is the purpose of meditation is to get it to quiet down, but if you can just drop into the body, none of that chitter chatter is there. And that is blissfully silent. That's a beautiful place to make love from. Body doesn't know how to be anywhere but here. Brain can be way off in the future or way back in the past. Your body can't do that. It only knows how to be here now. Or you can tap you into know, that. Just like all your listeners, we're smart people. We enjoy thinking, but it doesn't really have a place in the bedroom or in a relationship that much. And being embodied is like mindfulness, breathing correctly. It's, thing, it's something you have to bring yourself back into constantly because it'll it'll all slip up here. And we'll be on vacation off in the future somewhere. And then remember, oh, yeah, I have a body. Let's feel that for a second. Lately, I've been paying a lot of attention to Gobekli Tepe and a lot of these other 12,000-year-old religious sites that are in Turkey. And so they're the oldest ones we're aware of that are explicitly religious and spiritual in their mm -hmm. orientation. And there are depictions of humans without heads on a oh, perfect. Pillars. <laughs> perfect. There's a message there, huh? Try it. <laughs> we were just at, um, we're, we live in uh, LA, so in Pasadena, there was just a, a, an opening for a show of um, benevolent beings and it's statues of gods and goddesses from India, Tibet, Southeast Asia. And we were really remarking on how many affectionate couples there are that are gods and goddesses, just affectionate couples. And we did not grow up with this image. You know, we have the lone male God and okay, we'll throw in Mary if you're Catholic, but we have these lone male gods and we have, but we don't have this idea of affectionate couples. I mean, obviously in Tantra, there's Shiva and Shakti and that their sexual union created the universe. But in Western culture, we have nothing just of, I mean, I had a client ask me once, is there such a thing as good couples at work? I mean, does that exist? Really didn't know. So to, to grow up with this image of, or to be in a culture that's uh, steeped in uh, couples, like you said, there's very little couples. It just to have this image and this knowledge that that's possible. It's not just the gold. It is the gold, one of the gold rings. Freud said, work and love. That's really all that matters. That is so profound. I just, even now when I say it, I think that's so genius. But work and love, we want that great relationship. We want a meaningful career. Some people want to be alone. That's fine too. But for many of us, it's like, yeah, those affectionate couples, 
that can be a divine image for us. Yeah, that's really profound and staggering to think how few images of affectionate couples there have been in Western history and in the history of the monotheistic cultures in general. To have people for centuries or thousands of years never seeing an image of an affectionate couple, it's tragic. Well, I'm out of questions. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? <laughs> no, I think you're a good questioner. You ran me out. <laughs> Some good questions. Thank you. I love that one All about right, immigration well. before and after sex. That's a great way to think about it, especially if you're going to go be going to traveling to these unknown places that we don't know are available to us sexually, but we start traveling there. Sometimes people think when I say psychedelic sex, they I mean taking psychedelics and having sex, which there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. But if you also, there are techniques and methods, which I'm trying to research. Did anybody, who else besides us discovered this? What are these techniques and methods that you can actually get to these spiritually potent moments all through lovemaking that are transformative? You know, there's a lot of research being done in psychedelic studies now about do the psychedelic experiences uh, develop a person? In their help speed them in their evolution most of us would anecdotally say yes but you know they want to get some scientific research under it and i'm like okay there's some technologies here also for expanding ourselves spiritually and personally through lovemaking that aren't maybe they're out there and i'm sure they're out there and i haven't found them yet but i want to find them and get this information out to whoever wants it this is for us thank you for your focus on this and thanks for the energy that you're bringing to it and again thanks for uh showing up as an affectionate team this has been great we, we went into this being people who didn't know how to do relationships and we came out of it transformed beautiful good luck with your work and be well thank you so much thanks Layman.